Hi there, you're listening to the ACE podcast. I'm Pete Perfides and today it's my great pleasure to introduce to you a good friend of mine and a good friend of ACE Records who has been living a pop fan's dream for all of his adult life ever since 1986 when he and his best mate Pete Wiggs created their own fanzine Pop Avalanche which he described as a cross between the topper and an angry brigade missive. (laughs) He grew up in Rygate in Surrey, just a short bus ride from the Red Hill branch of Woolworths, where he bought his first ever record, Amateur Hour by Sparks. And then since then, he's bought a few more. In a forthcoming book of biographical reminiscences, he reveals that the section of his home which houses his records is an attempt to recreate the look and feel of Beano's legendary record shop in Croydon. Uh, throughout the whole of his adult life, he's been making music and writing about it too. Last year, his group San Etienne released their ninth studio album, Home Counties, to universal acclaim. And in 2013, his definitive history of pop, Yeah, 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 the story of modern pop, instantly established itself as a set text for inquisitive music lovers of all ages. He'll also be kicking off Pomona Books' new sleeve note series in January a volume in which he's written about episodes in his life that had an influence on his music with Saint-Étienne. And, as well as making albums, he also compiles them for Ace. The chaps from Saint-Étienne have put together three brilliantly thematically linked collections of music, English Weather, Paris in the Spring, and a brand new anthology, State of the Union, The American Dream in Crisis. And lest we forget, there was also When the Day is Done, which gathered together the orchestrations of Robert Kirby, best known for his work with Nick Drake. The man sitting right in front of me is, of course, Bob Stanley. Hello, Pete. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, um, I want to start, I think, by talking about making compilations which is something you, you you do a lot of and you're very good at it, obviously. Not just the ones you've done for Ace, though, but sort of compilations in general. Uh, the, the, the ones you've been doing, does it feel like a continuation from what you did, you know, what I guess we both did with cassettes as children? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the State of the Union is something I've kind of been mulling over for years and made various... Uh, sort of first drafts of it, um, so it's you know it's it's really it's really exciting to actually see it as a as a proper record with proper artwork, um, and um, yeah, hopefully hopefully there'll be more of these things to come. Well, yeah, I mean it, you know it exists in your head for so long, it must be kind of, and it's got such a beautiful sleeve as well. This oh, kind of blue skied kind of photograph of. A kind of children play. It, would it have been of that period between 1967 and 1973? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's 72. It's um, it's part of um, uh, the, the Nixon government had this initiative called uh, Documerica, where they wanted uh, professional photographers to go around the country taking and the, the archive is, is just absolutely astonishing, and it's um, it yeah, you know, it's one of those things that makes you think, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> things look a lot cleaner now than they did in the early seventies. It's uh, there's just incredible pollution, sort of st- pictures of strip mining mm. in wherever the Midwest. Um, but this this is like uh, this this shot is just a, a fairly sort of standard kind of uh, timber frame house with kids playing in the garden, and right next to it, this is chimney belching out. Um, um, 
smoke, so there's this massive black cloud. Um, it's, it's hard to see at first, but the blue sky just goes black the higher up it goes. Oh, well, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's just pure the pollution. pollution. Oh, yeah. right, okay. It's really, really bad. Because it also looks very beautiful as well. Yeah, it kind of looks like, you know, it's like a still from the Brady Bunch or something, yeah, but it's, it's, not, it's not really. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but it's, it's an amazing uh, archive anyway, Documerica. So you'd been gathering tracks. Is that, is this how it works with you in compilations? You sort of, you kind of gather tracks kind of in your mind, I guess, to start with one at a time. And when you have sort of enough for it to sort of feel like, I guess those songs are sort of essentially telling a story, aren't they? Yeah. Then yeah. it's time to get to work. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of starting with, yeah, maybe a dozen a dozen tracks that, that are clearly linked and then sort of fleshing that out and getting a, a first draft. I mean, quite often you don't you don't get everything you want. Um but Liz Buckley at Ace is is incredibly skilled at uh, clearing things like incredibly you know, the Beach Boys, Frank Sinatra, the Four Seasons, uh, people who never normally clear for compilations. So yeah, it's it's really an incredible sort of procession of um, artists. So what? So like we say, if, if if any kind of if a compilation tells a story, what story, in your word, does this compilation seek to tell? Um, it's it's um, kind of sort of the post post psychedelic America, I suppose when. Um, was, was, I think 1968 was like a really key year, obviously around the world. But uh, in America, I think it was the year that um, most people probably turned against the Vietnam War, um, and there were assassinations of like really important, you know, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, a few weeks apart, which just seems it's, it's hard to really mm. understand how much of an impact on the American psyche that would have had. Um, and so it's it's kind of the, the music that's like a reflection on that uh, by people who previously would have you'd have thought were possibly conservative or certainly would have um, just been singing like you know Bing Crosby yeah had never sung a political song in his life but yeah. um, he did in 1967 he's you know obviously quite gentle you know you're not expecting these people to no sort of like you know wave placards but it's um it's 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 kind of like old old america just like in in a state of confusion and yeah there's sort of thoughtful on. songs about what it means to be american uh, often yeah. told in the form of vignettes but nevertheless they correspond to a mood that is there and that, yeah so that's kind of that's that seems to be the common thread yeah it's you know it's and, and then there's um, you know, divorce rates were going through the roof at, by the late sixties, and uh, uh, well, the cover reflects the the um, what you know the American way of life was actually doing to the countryside, which was like mm. destroying it because uh, it was so consumer led, massive cars and what have you. Um, so yeah, it's very various themes. There's a couple of songs about divorce um, and families breaking down, and the Bing Crosby ones about the space race. Yeah, and wondering what on earth we're doing while the the, you know, the world's in a mess. It's um, so it's just, it's a lot of uh, a lot of questions that were at least uh, questions about things that also sort of younger artists were asking questions. But I guess because these artists were a bit older mm. and maybe they had children, they had that sort of slightly more reflective, sort of careworn perspective on the world, and that yeah, seems to be yeah. what comes through. Yeah. I mean the. Um, there's a track from uh, Frank Sinatra's album Watertown, which in itself is an incredible record, isn't it? Yeah, that's an amazing record. 
How did you? Uh, I, that's. I mean, I. Uh, Watertown is an album that's kind of you know it's spawned kind of bo- you know bodies of words. An amazing website, sort of devoted entirely to that record. Mm. Why? What is it about that record that makes people love it as much as they do? Um, I think. Well, I think it's uh, it's 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 beautifully produced. It's a it's a very sort of simple story as well. And I think you know the last person you're expecting to do that is Frank Sinatra, mm. given what what happened in his life. But it's like a a bloke who lives in a small town. His wife's left him. Uh, at least you assume she's left him. She hasn't just died, which is like some people's readings of it. Right, yeah. Um, because he, he's just happy living in the small town and presumably she has more ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that very simple story told over a whole album. Uh, yeah. So it's like a song about the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, odd mentions a lot of yeah. like the bloke, you know, their, their gardener who's mowing the lawn. I mean, just really odd. De- not odd, but yeah. it's very... Very minor details. It's a really, it's just very beautifully observed, and yeah, uh, it really is. His his voice is perfect for it because it's. Um, he retired straight after it came out because no one bought it, and also he thought his voice was going, hmm. and he, he didn't want to um, carry on till he till he dropped. So he took three years off and then came back and and ruined that perfect ending. <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> you must have been delighted. I know that um, there's a Roy Orbison song on there, Southbound Jericho Parkway. Which is sort of an epic piece of work, and I know it's a song that's been sort of kind of close to your heart for a long time. That must have been thrill getting getting that cleared for the record. So what's for people who don't know? What what what? Tell us a bit about that song. Uh, it's well, it's seven minutes long, so it would have come out in the wake of MacArthur Park and Hey Jude and uh, other epic songs in '68. It came out in 1969, um, but it's it's got no chorus. It's just like I think maybe five different pieces stuck together uh, mm. to tell tell a story of a, a businessman who's divorced at the beginning who drives his car into a wall and kills himself and then uh, it goes through each member of his family reflecting on, yeah. on this death uh, it's not the most commercial <laughs> single ever released uh, but it's, it's just an astonishing record and it's um it was it's probably it was um it was arranged by these two guys who recorded the neon philharmonic who aren't oh, on wow. this, but... Um, Tupper Saucy. Tupper Saucy and Don Gant, yeah. Um, so they're, 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 that's that's the reason it sounds the way it does. They didn't write it, oddly, but um, I think they must have had a hand in writing it, even though they don't get a credit. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, I guess sort of... Um, so that's sort of, how, sort of... From conception to execution, a record like that, how long does it sort of take to see it through? Um, it's probably been it's been over a year um, from like the first draft. You, you know, you end up waiting on a lot of things to mm. clear, um, mm. leaving it as long as you possibly can. I think the four seasons only came through at the last minute, uh, but so you, you have like, sort of substitute tracks in mind as well. But there's always like a, a dream running order, and this is very very close Quite to close, it. Yeah, almost, yeah, I must say, I mean, nothing yeah, could, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, can you remember the first comp- like literally the first compilation you ever made in your life, or good, you know, close as? I think the first one I did that wasn't literally just taping things off the radio was um, what do we know, nineteen eighty? Oh, and also just like you know, compilations of singles you've bought, mm. which doesn't really count. Um, I did like a, a sort of summer '60s summer compilation. Which mm. had things like by the time I get to Phoenix and Elusive Butterfly, um, 
so nothing nothing obscure. Different drum by the Stone Ponies. That's pretty much the most obscure thing on it. But just like from various compilations and albums I had. How old were you? Um, I'd have been. 15 I think mm. um, so not, not that can you know. remember that? So those are kind of songs that I would imagine your parents being being quite approving that you would have put on a compilation can you remember register any remember any response from them uh, no <laughs> I always wanted them to like things I was playing I was like the opposite of most teenagers I remember um, I bought um, Julian Cope's Scott Walker compilation mm. and my mum thought it was terrible and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, she, but she loved the Walker Brothers. Uh, it's like, well, you know, well, how that, hard do I have to try here? So, that tells a story. And it's, uh, that tells us a little bit of a story about Scott Walker as well. Um, sort yeah. of, uh, you know, and how, you know, the kind of, I guess, the goodwill he slightly lost amongst some of his fans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, your dad, your dad was, I, remember, I read a story once about him. Um, I think this might have been in, in the book, maybe, about um, Tennessee Ernie Ford's 16 Tons. That was like a kind of, a, kind of like a lodestone record for him, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he'd have been like fourteen, thirteen or fourteen when it came out, and mm. um, it was yeah, he he loved it. And then he was at school, and some other kid at school said, "What's your favourite record, Dave?" And he said, "16 Tons." I'm like, old hat," and he was like, you know, about four weeks after it been number one <laughs> because Bill Haley was now the thing to be into, and my dad was like, "Well, I like that as well. I can't really see why." You you're not allowed to like both, and I think it's kind of yeah, how yeah. I've gone through my life with this story in my head. Um, I could <laughs> never really understand why. Uh, I remember being a uh, maybe sort of twelve or thirteen, and people who were like older than me at school had favourite bands, and I was like, I "Don't really understand the concept of favourite bands." I mean, obviously, I, yeah. I like a lot of music, but you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, I remember that very clearly. I just liked what was yeah. what was in the chart and pretty much everything I heard, I suppose. Yeah, well, which is kind of, I guess, fairly standard, really. But I guess it does sort of, I sort of often, I try, you know, it's kind of, I don't see, it, I feel like that kind of period of, of pop music history was sort of a bit like the Big Bang and, you know, our concept of time is is contingent on what we know about the big bang and sort of as far as i insofar as i understand it i, I misremembered this but i think time literally was going faster sort of closer the closer you are to that colossal cosmic explosion and now it's just kind of stretching slowing down sort of slightly so it does kind of make sense that you know you could go into school and say i love 16 tons and then someone's joking like you know that, that was and the, that's ancient and people you know it was only th like three weeks ago yeah because yeah. like certainly now if you sort of went into school and said you know i, I i'm What's your, you know, like, Wiley's my favourite artist. And someone says, are you joking? Wiley, like, we're all listening to Stormzy now, you know. I'm not sure that that's kind of, maybe it's happening. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, but he, he, your dad was sort of very, well. your parents were very sort of welcoming of, you know, did they give you like records to play with? In, yeah, uh, I mean, they gave me their old, their old records. Um, my, my gran used to get me records from a junk shop. Hmm. Um and because she, she ran a sweet shop, my grandparents ran a sweet shop in Brighton, and so she used to get the records from a junk shop, and then uh, they'd like candy striped sweet bags. She cut holes out in the middle of them um, and put the singles in, so it was like a proper seven-inch bag. I, I wish I had one of them, but oh, I, don't, well, I don't have yeah. any of them. That 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 must be like your rosebud or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
That, so, yeah, didn't you, you used to sleep in the stock room of the shop. So when you used to stay yeah. with your great, you used to sleep in the stock. So mm. you used to literally sleep in a room that was floor to ceiling with chocolate. Yeah, yeah, but all boxed up. All a bit boxed up. Yeah, all a bit boxed up, nothing yeah. loose. And, and there was like um, mouse traps, I remember, around as well. Mouse oh, poison. Okay. It was, it was oh, that's kind probably of... the early 70s. It was, <laughs> that's like, a, that's a really, that's like. Um... I wasn't allowed to touch that either. Funnily enough, no, but that's like that. that that's, that's almost weirdly the, the the two the two extremes of the human experience for a child, <laughs> like the thing you'd least like sleeping in a room with mice, and yet with and but yet packed floor to ceiling with all your favourite. Did yeah. you ever, you didn't did you ever? So with it, so no, I was too scared to eat any of the shot. I never what would have happened? Do you think? Um, I, just probably not nothing that bad, really. I mean, I was probably threatened with never being able to stay. With my grandparents again, but uh, yeah, yeah, and I just believed that. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, no, it's it's, it's pretty goody two shoes. I can't believe I never even ate one one bar of chocolate there. You didn't drink, you didn't smoke. <laughs> Sorry, Adam, a bit of an adamant reference there for um, people of a certain age. <clears throat> um, I'm quite. So I love. So this book, there's this book that you've you you've read. It's just quite a small volume. But it's yeah. the first in a series of books by musicians where they talk about sort of things that inspired their music. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And yours is the, fir- the, the first in the series, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so, I think it's David Gedge's doing one. I think maybe Stuart Murdoch. Okay. Uh, David Gedge's is about ten times the size of mine. Mine's uh, really? pretty, quite slim, yeah. Wow. He might, I, don't know if, I don't know if he's gone through his whole career <laughs> But the, the album's just like a few snapshots of one song of each album, basically. Well, yes, no, well, I, it's yeah. I'm just trying to imagine what David David Gedge's one would consist of. It's like sort of bumping into ex girlfriends in supermarkets and then going off to write a song about it. So <laughs> must must be a, a comprise at least one third of it. But um, <laughs> so um, but there's a again. It's it's very nice when you read a sort of a, something by someone who you sort of. You know very well, and yet there are sort of things that you didn't know. So, for instance, I didn't know until I read this that uh, I'm just going to try and find the uh, the the <laughs> you worked <laughs> as, a, as a teenager. At least I think as a teenager, you worked on an egg stall in Surrey Street Market in what was that Croydon? Or? Yeah, in Croydon. Yeah, yeah. St- and it just sold eggs, um, eggs and cheese <laughs> and bacon and ham. What those like eggs? I was going to say the Holy Trinity, but that's not that's. I say ham, no, maybe it's just bacon, eggs, cheese, and bacon. That was it, I think. Oh, good. We can say it's the Holy Trinity. (laughs) Um, And uh, the um, I'm so so tell 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 me about the egg stall, the eggs, the the eggs, because I because I, I mean, the details were quite unsavoury. I thought. Yeah, I uh, I I don't think I've ever written something where I've had to change someone's name. For legal reasons, but um, yeah, the eggs we used to sell uh, were came over from Denmark. Mm. By which point, they were past their sell-by date, and uh, the woman who ran the egg stall used to sell them to unsuspecting people in Croydon. So uh, my mum always used to say, "Remember to bring some eggs home," and I never did. And she was like, "Gormless idiot," you know. Like, you know. but you know, I didn't want. Also, I didn't want to say to her because I'd never be able to work there again that I'm selling poisonous eggs. Yeah. So, yeah. Which have like you know, if you open up the wrong. Box and it would have maggots crawling out of it. Well, and that literally would happen. You'd see maggoty eggs. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was was really horrible. Hang on. So the uh, the maggots were breaking out of the egg. 
Is that, is that what? Well, no, no, I mean, the egg must have been broken already, I guess. And I they were, they'd kind I, of... I don't really want to think about that. That migrate, it. okay. Uh, that's... A, I mean, that this slightly breaks my heart because it's a little bit kind of... You know, you're caught in between two... You're, you're, you know, you're sort of... You don't want to snitch on the egg stall holder and yet your mum... And, of course, in order to not do that, you, obviously you don't want to bring poisonous eggs home. So that's a that's a kind of that's a poignant um, quandary that you're in. Yeah, it wasn't so much that I didn't want to snitch on her because she wasn't very nice, um, but more that I just wouldn't have a job, wouldn't have a Saturday job okay. anymore. I guess so okay. it, was, it was entirely selfish. The store was like uh, uh, two or three doors down from Beano's, so right. I was just like get my earnings at the end of it on a Saturday and then spend them all in Beano's. And Beano's, for those people who don't know, in its pomp was a four-floor record buyer's paradise, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was a, it sort of claimed to be the biggest second-hand shop in the country, record shop, and I can't imagine there was uh, yeah. maybe Reddington's in Birmingham, but there can't have been many that were as big as that. Well, I used to go to Reddington's, so I can confirm that, because I've been to, uh, Beano's was bigger. Okay, I, I can very good. Uh, and uh, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> the phrase that your mum to, to, used to sort of uh, obviously when you came home without the eggs, I love this phrase. Can I say, or do you know what do you know what I mean? I think so. Yeah, tit in a trance. Yeah, yeah. Is that a thing? I've never heard the. No, I've never heard anyone. I was assuming it's a thing that lots of people said, but I've never heard anyone <laughs> say it about my, my mum, my, my grandparents. So maybe it was. Uh, it's a family thing. What, like you, You're like two tits in a trance. It's kind of like the opposite of two peas <laughs> in a pod, I think. <laughs> two tits in a trance. That's fantastic. Um, I was going to say I'd try and bring it back, but I'm not sure I'd create the right impression if I just started, started telling people they were like tits in a trance. So, yeah, so four floors. And so that was like your sort of... Um, well, it must be amazing sort of living near a place like that. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, if I heard something, I was on the radio, I remember hearing Tell It Like It Is by Aaron Neville um, and then just being able to go into Beano's and I had a copy because I just had pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so that was obviously, most people couldn't do that. It was, it was, uh, it was an amazing shop. And also it had, um, it's the only shop I've ever been in that had singles uh, chart singles in a section of their own, like A to Z, and so anything that'd been in the chart, in the chart, and it had the chart position on a sticker. Um, so anything oh, so they heard, stocked and... new records as well. Oh no, no, no! Sorry for old stuff. Oh, okay. Right. But I mean, it's because obviously there was journalists bringing stuff in. They'd have they'd have Quite new news, things yeah. within a week or two of them coming out. I remember getting um, the first specials album in there on Chrysalis, weirdly, like a Dutch pressing of right, it. Right, I guess because um, like yeah. the week that came yeah, out, yeah. Um, so they must have, I don't know where they were getting this talk from. They did, yeah, they did used to get pretty much new stuff as well. How old would you have been at this point? Uh, I was, well, 1979, I'd have been, uh, what was I, 15, 14. You know that thing that you get when you when you're like that age or even younger and you go to record shops that are mostly frequented by older people, do, do you ever get? Do you, sometimes you get good attention, don't you? Sometimes someone says, "Oh, what you do? What's someone of your age do?" Or like, "Oh, I did. I didn't expect you'd heard of." It. Did Did you ever get any sort of any of that kind of nice attention? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was always it was always quite moody. Um, really? Oh. Yeah, no, it's one of those uh, things that, like, you know, like going there for like decades. Eventually, obviously, people are nice to you when you spend money. I mean, most most record shops were like this. I think it's it's changed a bit now because having gone through that sort of trough where so many were closing. Yeah. I think it's quite rare to go into a record shop now where people are moody. There's one in Accrington, if anybody wants to relive the experience. Um, but uh, <laughs> What happened? Uh, he, he's just quite moody, the bloke in there. I can't remember what it's called, but um, he'll look everything up on... He'll, it's, this is quite clever. He, he, you ask if he's got something. He goes and looks it up on Discogs. He says, I can get it to you for this amount, and just like <laughs> looks on Discogs and ups the, ups the amount But yeah, for unsuspecting people who've... Never heard of Discogs, which isn't very many people. No, that's I, I don't think there's too much mileage in that. Uh, no, I think uh, it's, it's running out of steam. That. He certainly and he actually said, Have you heard of Discogs? I was like, Yes. And then he, um, <laughs> he stopped doing that. It's like Haggle Records that used to be on Essex Road, yeah, where like, one, yeah. if you tried to haggle, then he'd get really cross. <laughs> He's like, Hmm. <laughs> I think there's an aspect of this that you haven't thought through properly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I actually did get that. I get, I, so I remember when there was, um, growing up in Birmingham, there was a uh, shop in Solihull called uh, Discovery. And when I was 14, I went in and bought uh, a, a Doors album, uh, which the, a live, there was a, the first sort of light, like Doors album to be released sort of outside, be after Jim Morrison had died. Uh, it was called Alive, She Cried, and I sort of went in there, and um, and the bloke who worked, the bloke who worked there sort of said, oh, is it, is he, are you buying this for someone? I said, I'm buying it for myself, which I sort of was, um, and uh, and he said, oh, that's, that's really cool, oh, God, that's impressive, and obviously, of course, it, now... It seems preposterous that anyone would think uh, think me cool for buying a Doors record because that's time has moved on somewhat. But um, the Doors still weren't quite so well known in late late nineties. The really good thing was about six hours later, I came in to get something else, and the bloke said to another guy working at the shop, he said, "There's that kid I was telling you about that bought that Doors record," <laughs> and then I just kind of like levitated out of the shop. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, no, I can't really remember. I mean, in Beano's, some people were more polite than others. There was a guy called Ray who looked like Cat Weasel, um, and he worked on the, on the singles floor, and he was just quite rude to everybody. Um, yeah. Until, like, yeah, well, after has been going out for God knows how long, 20-odd years, um, we got into a conversation, a couple of conversations, one about uh, uh, Society's Child by Janice Ian, which is a terrific record. Mm. And he said, oh, no, I remember... Um, uh, finding a copy of that when I was on my way to a funeral once. It was like a junk shop, so I thought I'd pop in, and I, I found it, and I thought, well, I can't I can't carry this, this to the funeral. Was, I can't just carry a record with me. <laughs> so he had to put it back. That was his story about society's child. That's quite poignant. It seemed, seemed very sort of in keeping with Ray's demeanour as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, let's talk about, before, I, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tin sitting between us which is uh formerly used to um have tea leaves in it and now it's got a bunch of questions i and i put in most of which have been stolen from old uh issues of smash hits but not exclusively i think we might go back and talk about some of some other um records you've put together for ace but I, i'm going to park that for a bit i want to see what happens when you open the tin bob Okay, I'm going to open the tin now. You'll hear the tin being opened. And like I said, they're not they're not all from smash hits in the mid-80s, but just have a, have a bit little rootle around there, you know. 
they uh, a couple were written by me, but okay. Have you got one of those flush things that you hang down inside the loo? Oh yeah, that was from Smash Hits nineteen eighty seven. I think that was from an Angry Anderson interview. <laughs> um, no, I haven't, but I do still use. Um, I can't think what they're called. Blue B L double O. Oh yeah, or um, bro Brobat Blue. Was Brobat Blue? That's yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. I think he Robat, but I thought I said wrong. Yeah. What? Well. Brobat Blue. Yeah. So I, I do, do still use those and. Um, um, my, my mother-in-law said, "Oh, that's that's uh, funny. You still use those days." I felt really because well, your something. mother-in-law's kind of become more up to date than you have. I, I suppose so. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, when I think about it, I don't normally go around people's houses and toilet flushes blue when they flush it. It's, that's so, those um, those discs though. The little kind of the little kind of useful. They're, that's one of the greatest smells of all time, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a good smell, yeah. When I was little, I used to sometimes carry it around the house just so I could idly sniff on it. I mean, I don't know what <laughs> chemicals they've even got in them. But, um, yeah, no, even just picking one up with my hand with paper on it, I feel quite uncomfortable. So Okay. I can't remember what and Angry Anderson said in, <laughs> in response to that question. Do you want to pick out another one? Okay. And then I'm going to ask you something serious again. Well, you know, slightly serious, maybe. Oh, it's a really long one. I need to put my glasses on. Why don't you pick another one? Don't worry, pick another one. No, I'll, I'll, I'll do this one. I'll just put my glasses on first. Okay. If you had to do one of the following, which would it be? A, run a butcher's shop with Samantha Fox. B, go abseiling with Giles Brandreth. C, go and see Torvald and Dean with Mick Talbot. <laughs> or D, be Harvey Smith's horse in the Horse of the Year show. Well, I think it would have to be A, really, wouldn't it? I mean, Samantha Fox, I suppose, um, if that's like a question from the 80s. It's, uh... Yeah, I think that was for Nick Kamen. That was... <laughs> Which one did he pick, do you know? I can't remember, but I would, you know, why wouldn't you pick a, a running a butcher's shot with Samantha Fox? That, yeah, that sounds like a pretty big... It also sounds like a, a, a very plausible thing. It's a, like, it's a, sounds like a very plausible thing to imagine. I yeah, can very no, I, can, much... I can, yeah, I'm... I'm not going to think about it too much, but I can, I can quite easily imagine it. Yeah. I can imagine the front. Of, I can imagine her sort of, kind of coming in from the warehouse with like uh, like half a cow's carcass, kind of hang, <laughs> hanging off her back, and then slapping it quite kind of uh, slamming it quite aggressively on the big wooden block, and then just kind of dividing it into you know various things. Whilst you kind of you you I can see you as being a more front of house kind of uh, <laughs> more front of house than Samantha Fox. <laughs> that's that's where the business plan falls apart. <laughs> well, do you want? Do you really want to be carrying that carcass from not, the back? No, not really. I was imagining myself with a sort of sealing machine, sort of um, putting slices of bacon in, which I used to do. So, I've got oh, really? My, yeah, okay. Expert knowledge of how to do. I that. think we need a third person in this shop. I think we need <laughs> we need to call up Sunita and see what she's doing. <laughs> okay, um, let's go. <laughs> Let's go back briefly and talk about some of the other sort of stuff you've uh, uh, put together for Atrix. I'm fascinated by this idea of compilations because um, I, on, I feel that without the compilation, my life would be a, a, appreciably worse. My situation would be appreciably worse than, than it currently is. And I'll, I'll sort of tell you why. Uh, because... Um, when I 
first start when I first started going seeing I use the word in inverted commas see, seeing uh, Catelyn who I'm married to uh, and have been for um, longer than I care to remember about 25 years oh, anyways, many years anyway we we when we started going out with each other we were sort of friends uh, and we decided she we we went on a driving holiday together as friends and um and it was in in february and we just went dry we so well, i had this kind of idea i was owed some time off by the magazine that i worked for and i had this idea that it'd be good to just like get in a car and just go anywhere because it was february so oh, you'd be you'd always be able to find somewhere to stay and when i told her about it she said that's a good idea can i come as well i said yeah of course you know and um and anyway i sort of um so in the in the sort of one day period leading up to our leaving to go on this holiday, I de- I decided I, I the the only way this could really work would be if I tried to impress her by doing as many compilation tapes as possible, and uh, and I thought if if I just provided her furnished her with a, a soundtrack of music that was just so sensational. Um, but constantly then she would confuse the, the music with the person that had compiled it and and just sort of want to want to go out with me and it was a bit like now I look back on it it's a bit like kidnapping someone because <laughs> because you know she was obviously locked in you know in a moving car with me and uh and you know she sort she, she didn't bring any tapes so it was like so I sort of think that well, by the end of the holiday, we were sort of go, we were a couple, and I think some kind of Stockholm syndrome sort of t- happened in that in that time, whereby she kind of we went through a kind of whole process, and by the end of it, she's you know it was like um, she sort of fell in love with her captor, and uh, <laughs> and so compilation. So obviously, I'm a big fan of compilation tapes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite unnerving. Yeah. So have you ever, have you ever, you know, but a lot of people start doing compilation tapes often in their late teens, possibly to like impress someone that they maybe want to, you know, not yeah. necessarily romantically, but you know, in all sorts of ways. Did, was that, did that, was that a sort of factor for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I still make compilations for friends now. Um, except the CD ones, which is oh, still yeah, an old-fashioned format now. But mm. um, I wouldn't make cassettes; so I would be a bit uh, intentionally arcane. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, for for girls who I did want to go out with or didn't, and anyone really, I used to love making. I always loved making compilations. I think um, something we both have in common, which I think most people who are <laughs> professional music writers don't, is that. We both uh, loved KTL albums and uh, um, what were basically like thrown together cheapo compilations. Yeah, we grew up with them, and I think um, that that probably kind of informed my um, understanding of compilations early on. And then yeah. um, things that uh, Liberty and United Artists did um, in the seventies, in the mm. early early to mid seventies. Um, I think it's Andrew Lauder was probably behind them, and he's someone I must talk to about this. 
um, things like the Beat Merchants, mm. um, Hard Up Heroes. Those that was on Decca, wasn't it? There's a bunch of compilations of things that weren't hits. And when I was a kid, I couldn't understand yeah. why they existed because there was nothing you'd heard of on them. Hard Up Heroes is is the one that's that's like famous, like famous pop stars recordings by them before they were famous. Is that's that right? It. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, so yeah. It's got like Bowie on it. David Rod Essex Stewart is on it. Is yeah, on there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a good one. It's a really good one. Yeah, and they're, they're kind of like the first. British compilations, um, and then a lot of rockabilly ones in the mid seventies as well, yeah. um, which which I started doing. Yeah, um, um, yeah, they were the first compilations I was aware of that weren't that weren't just hit compilations or greatest hits. And um, did you sort of um, get the the K-Tail ones and the Ronco ones? They sort of I almost feel like maybe someone should kind of put together a, a sort of exhibition of the artwork on those records because they're sort of they're almost they sort of sit apart really from any other sort of graphic art because they had to be quite they had to be quite l literal representations of the titles a lot of the time so so with chart blasters 81 you had a kind of fist kind of punching through a wall and band names kind of scattered around uh yeah, there's a lot of explosions 20 explosive hits 20 power hits yeah yeah um chart encounters of the hit kind oh yeah there's a lot of space ones around the yeah yeah late 70s early 80s yeah yeah and uh raiders of the pop charts raiders of the pop charts the last big one before now came in and that's shut right down really yeah i think roman holiday were on that one <laughs> And uh, yeah, and um, you also had uh, yeah. So what was that? Space Space Invasion, which was so I quite like the ones where they kind of because they weren't all sort of like you said they weren't all sort of things that were in the chart at that time. Sometimes you get these thematic ones. So Space Invasion was kind of like a bunch of songs that all had a kind of but they weren't all kind of futuristic sounding songs. So you'd have like the Yellow Magic Orchestra, but you'd also have Fireball by Deep Purple. And oh really? Wow. Yeah, I never, I never had that one. I, rem I remember it. I can remember the sleeve hmm. being like sort of like mock up of Space Invaders, I think, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it was street level. I remember it was like a kind of punk and new wave one. That was that was quite good. Wrong yeah, coded. that was a really that was a really good. That was quite thorough. You know, that was uh, if you wanted to get into the whole new wave sort of phenomenon very quickly. That was that was. It's a bit similarly with the. Um, the new romantic one, uh, the modern dance. Yes. Yeah, that was a really good one. Yeah, I mean that's that, a, that would that would kind of work now as like a a compilation of uh, entry levels of new romantic futurist stuff. Yeah, it really would. That's fantastic. And um, so there's a couple of a couple of the other compilations that you've um, put together for Ace that I also wanted to um, uh, talk about. I mean, English weather is you know. It came out to a, a fantastic reception, um, and I think again, it's this sort of thing that's kind of interesting to me, of um, almost sort of retrospectively giving a name to, if not a genre, then a sort of a phenomenon, a musical phenomenon that happened, and uh, that's kind of what that's that's kind of a case in point, is it? Isn't it in a way? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's not meant as a genre name, but um, it's basically uh, a collection of things, uh, sort of post psychedelic and pre progressive rock. Um, how Britain might have felt on the first day of the seventies, I think, is, is is the idea. Is that the brief you kind of set yourself almost? Yeah, yeah. It was it was um, 
well, I said this in the sleeve notes, but it, it, it just came about. I was in a shop in Newcastle. Um, I was doing some work in Sunderland a couple of years ago, and I just popped into this shop, and it was absolutely torrential, like really torrential rain out. Uh, and I was, I was meant to be doing some stuff in Newcastle, but I just ended up staying in the shop for about three hours. And when I, when I went in there, uh, they were playing this album, which at first I couldn't work out if it was a new band trying to sound like something from the early 70s or an, or an actual band because it was, it was slightly amateurish. And it's by a Sheffield group called Shape of the Rain, which is a great name for a group. Uh, and they played that and they were playing other stuff, in a, which all sounded in a similar vein. It turned out they had like one bloke's record collection from the early 70s and he had a lot of like rare things like Spring, T2. Uh, and the bloke said, well, what, what were you looking for? I said, well, this sounds pretty good. Have you got more things like this? And he, and he showed me this huge collection. Um, and so you know, I ended up spending the whole afternoon listening to these things. And I thought, well, these these all fit together really nicely, and that was uh, that was where that was where it was just you know that's where it came from really, just that, that day. And it was obviously a, quite a few things in that vein already knew that I wanted to include, like refugees by Van de Graaff Generator. I've always loved. Uh, it's it's kind of like early progressive rock before it becomes uh, like a hardened sound yeah. that you expect, you know, like a little organ solo or anything. Like yeah, that. and so, it, there's also enough kind of it also when there's enough pop inside it to sort and enough melody to sort of uh you know it there's a kind of economy about it that maybe yeah. isn't so much in no absolutely and i think it's one of those things where because I, I love british psychedelia and uh I, I know people who like prog and i've always mm. said well you know you, i don't know i don't know why you don't like prog cause it's a logical extension of british psychedelia yeah and it was um it was not knowing these bits in the middle which are kind of what english weather is that made, meant i couldn't make the join from yeah. one to the other, but I mean, yeah. pretty much all those bands like Yes, Genesis, Camel, Caravan, all their first albums are are, are really melodic and, you know, like mm. you said, quite economical. There's there's yeah. there's no sort of fifteen minute instrumentals yeah. or anything, um, and that's that's kind of the the, the the point at which the two genres join together, and that's what the compilation was about. It's a decade that sort of starts. I mean, the the seventies and the eighties, I think, were sort of. Um quite singular in a way in as much as it feels like both those decades started on time you know the 60s ended and it looking at the music press at the time and the music that was happening it felt like they really did end on december the 31st 1969 and everyone woke up the following day and feeling a little bit embarrassed about how naive they were in the 60s and you know that Suddenly it was raining and everyone had to go to work. Yeah, that's kind yeah, of how it seems, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's definitely how it seems to me. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't really remember. I remember things that, that happened in the 60s, but I wasn't aware of it being the 60s. But the early 70s, I can remember really clearly and just sort of seeing mm. hippies on Box Hill and bikers on Box Hill and, uh, um, and just hearing things, album tracks that Annie Nightingale might have been playing on the radio when we were driving to my yeah. grandparents or yeah. whatever, uh, you know, which are very. Um, which English weather kind of like I was, I was again trying to sort of get that feeling by putting a, a bunch of songs together. Um, but it, 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 always, it always felt like, to me, like even even with glam and things, that people were making the most of the situation and, and people yeah. really wanted it to still be the 60s. I feel like glam in a way, you know way more about this than I do, and so do correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like glam in a way is kind of rock and roll trying to get it back in through the back door um 
because it kind of a lot of it feels like a sort of version of rock and roll music rather than pop music um and um and also you know a lot of the people that were involved with glam were sort of ex rock and rollers who were just kind of having one last roll even the ones that didn't have hits like marty wilde sort of attempted to sort of reinvent himself didn't he as a yeah there's loads of marty wilde glam singles under various different names yeah and he was writing songs for his son ricky wilde who who made some great singles as well yeah um yeah again somebody i really want to interview and talk to about this and marty wilde really threw himself quite wholeheartedly into glam and yeah uh, and he did he, i think he did like a couple of singles as marty wilde but then he was Zappo, and he was. Uh, I mean, um, oh god, what are they called Rub- Ruby, somebody in the Dreamboats, which is just him, but it's like you know, like pretending he's a girl singer. Um, he sounds like he was ha- like more than maybe Ruby anyone Pearl on the Dreamboats. He sounds like he was having a, a bit of a laugh. Oh yeah, the whole time. Do you know what I mean? He sort of sounds like there's he's not there's no real great attempt to not sound like he's someone just sort of throw throw just just for a bit of fun throwing stuff against the ball and seeing what happens. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, he's probably doing that with um, him and Ricky were both writing for Kim Wilde, weren't they? Like. A few years after that, and it's, well, yeah, uh, I think it's much the same approach, really. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I was sort of I was writing something about Cambodia recently, and uh, Cambodia is an interesting Kim Wilde song because I think it was her third or fourth single, and the first two singles were very much in a sort of new wave kind of mode, and and then they obviously, and in that short period of time. You know, all all this, all, all these kind of new romantics and synth- futurists sort of were in the charts, and they had to think quickly. And uh, and Cambodia is this kind of wonderful glacial sort of uh, minor key. It's got very sort of um, presages Europe, like a lot of kind of a lot, a lot of things like voyage, voyage. Yeah, yeah, it really does sound like voyage, voyage. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrific record. Um, I don't know what the story is behind that. Oh, and also the story in the song is um, kind of an unfinished... There's no there's no real point to it, I don't think. It's literally about someone who flies over Cambodia during the war and never comes back, I think. That's it. Yeah. There's no uh, kind of... There's, there's a backstory, but there's, uh, there's no real conclusion to it, which makes it even more mysterious and... Uh, that's it. That's a really yeah, she saw. I think the general gist of the story is he saw something. He had to. She kind of like he saw something in the war. That's it. And yeah. She kind of lost him. You know, he even well, even you don't if know what he, it is. yeah, she sort of he was lost to whatever terrible things that he'd seen. Mm. I think is the sort of that's right. sort of gist of it. Okay, I think. Do you want to have another look in the the tin I will, and yeah. see what's um sidetracked by. There's no such thing as being sidetracked by Kim Wilde. It's just. <laughs> it's you, could a, a, you could run a flower shop with Kim Wilde. That'd be a good. Uh, that'd be a good job. Well. Oh, because she's she's into horticulture, yeah, isn't she? Yeah. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Okay, here we go. If you could bring back one packaging design that's no longer in use, what would it be? Ooh. That's going to be a tough one for you, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I really like uh, um, the Sainsbury's own brand cornflakes packets. Right. I think are really, really beautiful. Yeah. Um, which we used on a fan club CD once. I think Johnny Johnny Trunk used as a cover of his 
his uh, book. Miss Sainsbury's book, yeah. yeah. It's um, incredibly simple. Um, they had their own in-house design team, Sainsbury's, which is incredible. And they even keep a little kind of museum, don't they, that's not open to the public, I think. that's kind Yeah, of the... you can make an appointment to go and see it. It's um, it's not not as complete as you think it might be. It's um, I think a lot of things I just... They never thought to keep one no. one off, but um, uh, yeah, they've got like sort of sketches of um, whatever they have processed peas tin. But it uh, is very big. Yeah, it's the whole. Th- I mean, Johnny Johnny's book is is just a wonderful. It's a book that you go back to time and time again because it's just it, that whole aesthetic is spread across. Mm. But the the corn, is the cornflakes one the one with the kind of pagan sun on it. No, they did do that. That was later, I think. It was. Um, it's just. It's just white with um, orange discs, okay. sort of representing like you know a whole series of them representing uh, mm. cornflakes. But yeah, no, it's, I mean, the sort of just design around that time, I think, is pretty incredible. There was a, um, uh, a company called Design Research Unit who did all the British Rail stuff, um, and Watney's. Um, they had there was an exhibition we went to there. Designs. I, I just love the way that that period looks and the simplicity and use of typeface. It's a design research unit. Yeah. Oh, I thought they were signed to Ghostbox. <laughs> it's all very Ghostbox. It is very Ghostbox, isn't it? Um, while you put your hand back in the tin, I'm going, I'll just sort of, uh, I just let tell you that my if I had to choose one, it would probably be Vosine shampoo, the kind of teardrop shaped bottle from the from the late 70s which uh, was a kind of brown like a bit like the color of brown pyrex and uh mm, I remember and, it. yeah that yeah it was really nice but if you buy vosine shampoo i'm not sure how interesting people find it but i'm going to tell you anyway um it's the same smell so obviously proustian rush every time i wash my hair but there's no vosine conditioner on sale in the shops so you have to use another conditioner, which takes, which gets rid of the smell of the vosine, which is a, a great disappointing state of affairs to me because I want to be able to smell the comforting Proustian rush smell of vosine as I walk around going about my daily business, and the lack of conditioner denies me of this pleasure. That's a, that's a shame. I don't, I don't use conditioner myself. So. Well, oh, right, oh, maybe, oh, maybe, that's, maybe that's, that's the way to go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Have I just been wasting my money on well, conditioner? Well, I don't know. I think my hair probably looks like straw. I don't know. You, no, you it does. Tell me. I think uh, mine no, looks more like straw than don't yours. Use, don't use conditioner. Okay. If I was thinking, I didn't, I didn't know they still made it, but that really is, we're sounding a bit self-parody this year, I think. Now. <laughs> Conversation about <laughs> P- the smell of vosing. People knew what they were getting into when they <laughs> pressed play. <laughs> okay. Should I read out the next question? Hmm. What's the most horrible thing you've found in something you've eaten? Um, I, I put some Weetabix in a bowl once, and there was a, a maggot sitting on one of the Weetabixes. That wasn't that wasn't great. <laughs> just before I put the milk on, that was I'm really relieved to. Was well, this a it's long? Still t- alive, you know. Was this a long time ago? Or? Um, in the nineties, I don't know how it got in there. You wouldn't really think there'd be much for maggots in Weetabix. So no, I don't know how it got in there. I don't know what, what kind of ma- maggot it was. Maybe it survived from one of the it's eggs, the, from the egg store. <laughs> and it was a just... A maggot talk here. Sorry? A lot of maggot talk in this conversation. Maybe it kind of moved into one of your shoes when you moved house and it, re- and it procreated. <laughs> and it was like an ancestor of the egg maggots from previously. Um... Anyway, that's yeah, that's uh, that's probably the most horrible thing I've ever found. 
Okay. Um, so, um, moving swiftly on, have you got so have you got various sort of compilations in, in you know in varying stages of completion, and then when they kind of hit, you know, you know, a bit like those kind of those sort of thermometer things that they have on telethons when they hit a certain level then it's time you know then it's time to kind of get going is it um is is that the situation have you got some kind of spreadsheet uh with various the, pro the progress of various compilations um not really i mean I, I make i do make my own ones just to listen to at home on on mini discs i'm the mm. last person in the world who still uses mini disc um so i've got plenty that are just my own ones which i might try and convince people to do yeah or try and convince Ace to do as um, actual commercially available compilations. Um, but, I mean, you know, some of these were State of the Union was, um, and I'm working on a three-day week one at the moment, which hopefully is going to be out next spring. So what's the, to talk us through the kind of thematic sort of uh, you know, uh, genesis of that. Um, well, the genesis of it, I suppose, is just, I've collected glam records for a long time and there are quite a lot of records that kind of fit in that into, don't quite or don't quite fit in that box uh, but they'll be um, they'll just sound very British in the early 70s which that's basically what glam glam is to me um, so yeah I'm trying to think what the ingredients would be like a pub piano yeah it'll sound a bit like somebody in the studio is on strike um, instruments have been rationed. They, uh, <laughs> there was a power cut, so they had to like finish after an hour and a half. Um, so it's kind of like um, almost got this kind of wartime feel yeah. to it because um, productions have been so full before and were so full not long afterwards. You think of yeah. like, sort of like Bohemian Rhapsody or um, I'm Not in Love. It's just uh, this sort of like 73, 74 period where things just sounded muddy mm, uh, mm. and maybe sounded a bit nationalised as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's quite hard to... It's something that when you hear it, you you know what it is. It's a, yeah, absolutely. Normally quite a bit of fuzz guitar. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. It sounds, sounds wonderful. So that's that's what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, hopefully you, we'll get that out in time for in time for Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Well, that's it, the interesting thing, isn't it? But it's kind of, And I was thinking about that with State of the Union because obviously it's kind of, there's a sort of weird sort of symmetry of like you know uh, have putting out an album which is a compilation which sort of marks a, 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 a time of soul searching and sort of self-reflection in american history and obviously it's coming out in a in a sort of comparable a time another time of self-reflection yeah in, yeah in the uh, time of yeah that's i mean i think that's one of the reasons hopefully that it kind of makes sense to do it now um so it's be out around the time of the midterms Right. So okay. I'd be interested if it gets any 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 attention in America. Um, yeah, and the, the three day week compilation will come out probably next April. Right. Uh, and yeah, again, it's you know I think that that period was oh yeah that's not part of the union by the straw, but I think it was um, a lot of records that seem really insular and cut off from uh, um, it's, yes Britain look really looking quite inward. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, in straightened times, which. Obviously, we'll be here. Quite, it's quite very similar to now, I think. Even though the music that's coming out now doesn't really sound like that. No, no, it's it, but it, but it is. I, I guess I wonder, sort of, what 
I guess every, all, all popular music, all kind of popular music is emblematic of its time. But I guess it's too soon to know right now what kind of, in what ways the music of now will be seen as being emblematic of what's kind of happening yeah. in, in the wider world. Yeah, that's true. It's, you, you do need a bit of distance. Mm. I think, again, and then there's another thing that's nice about doing compilations of things from the past is you can, uh, you can just make a lot, get a lot more perspective on it and uh, things that will fit together that would, you'd, maybe you'd never have thought would fit together at the time. Which of the compilations you made are you sort of most pleased with that you? Um, I think English Weather, because it was the, the first one I did for Ace, and it was something that made sense in my head, but I had absolutely no idea if it would make sense to anybody else. Yeah. And it seemed quite a hard hard thing to sell. Um, but because people liked it so much, that was that was really exciting. Yeah, so you kind of you proceed in a more confident manner. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, uh, Paris in the Spring, I think again was something I'd, I'd had in my head for a while because uh, fr French pop just really before I, I knew that much about it and you know before the internet I was buying a lot of sort of yay yay stuff and yeah. France Gall and Francois Hardy and everything seemed to stop in 1968 after that the, those those people were either making records that sounded nothing like what they did before yeah. or they were making pretty terrible bubblegum records like yeah. France Gall did um, and, and, and obviously you, know, you had bands making albums all of a sudden it just changed almost overnight yeah That's yeah kind of what i wanted to get across in that compilation was uh, you know music from the summer of 1968 onwards for the next few years and yeah bore almost no resemblance to what came before but had a, a definite uh, feel of its own it is it's incredible and sort of this this uh and again, the the sound of French music sort of changed very radically from being sort of very kind of pop centered, and then suddenly you have these like the, you know so many French artists started to use the studio in in such a sophisticated and brilliant way, didn't they? And that really kind of comes through on a lot of the songs on the Paris in the Spring um, compilation. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that because you just did the early Francois Hardy records. I know I know she hates them, but they do sound incredibly threadbare. It's like they sound mm. like someone trying to sound like. They're trying to sound like Cliff Richard and the Shadows, basically, with a girl singer. Um, but it's so DIY sounding. They came here, some of them, didn't they? Because I know um, um, Francois Hardy came over here to make an album. Uh, went to, uh, um, was it Sound Techniques? I think she might have made one in Sound Techniques. And I think um, so. And then um, Melody Nelson was made in um, the, the, what was the, which were the studios in Marble Arch? Um, the, the, it was Pie. Was um, it the part the one? I think it was made at the uh, the ones that became Solid Bond. I think later on. When okay. I think so. I could get someone correct me, but uh, again, uh, recorded in London. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not sure where to be honest. I know. Yeah, the Francis Hardy one. I think Ace put out. Right. Was recorded in at Sound Techniques. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, the English language one is that the one you mean? Um, it's 1972. Was that 1972? Yeah, I think so. We can check. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um, that was something we we did. St. Etienne did an album with David Whittaker, the arranger who worked with Serge Gainsbourg, and um, I asked him what, what, what which studio, you know, how they decided which studio they were going to record in. And he said, "Well, it just depended whether me or Serge wanted to buy some new clothes, really." 
<laughs> Which is the right answer. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's like the colour of the guitar is much more important than the manufacturer. No, it's... not really. But... <laughs> um, just a quick word about, we kind of talked about sound techniques. That almost brings us quite nicely onto uh, When the Day is Done, the Robert Kirby compilation. Um, how did that, how, was that presumably, and again, and I, I guess you initiate all your ideas, but like, how did... Um, what was what sort of itch were you looking to scratch, as it were, with that one? Um, well, it, it, I think because I met Robert Kirby not long before he died. He was he was a really lovely bloke, and we were hoping to get him to do some St. Etienne stuff. But um, he was actually so busy at that point that he, he didn't have time. Um, we were hoping to get him to do. We were doing a film, a live performance at a festival hall. That's what it was, uh, like a, a film. So yeah. I wanted him to score and conduct the soundtrack. Um, and he was he was just too busy, um, but he was some he was somebody who uh, I knew his name from the Nick Drake records, and I'd always thought his arrangements were really my favourite thing about them. Um, and so I'd, I'd always looked out for his name on odd things, and would, it would turn up on whatever Spirogyra and lots of British folk rock things. Mm. Um, but if I if I saw anything with his name on the credit, and it wasn't crazily expensive, I'd buy it. Yeah. So I sort of kind of amassed this. Um, collection of Robert Kirby arrangements anyway and, and when, when he died I, I assumed that Universal who'd done a pretty good job of Sandy Denny's archive and Nick Drake's would, would just instantly put this compilation together Yeah, because it just seemed so obvious and then years went by and nobody'd done it so uh, I, I pitched it and, um, and well, then, I, found, I found more things since as well I mean, it's, um, like what? Uh, oh god I'm trying to think of his name now that's annoying I can't think of it it's too right. much of an anecdote um, um, but you know I, I, I sort of I think what he was really good at was taking fairly mediocre singer-songwriter material, writing this beautiful arrangement, and so it ends up being something completely different. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Forest in the Shore by Keith Christmas is probably the best example of that. Yeah. The song on its own barely exists, but... Yeah, you're right, actually. So, yeah, I mean, I bought that I bought that Keith Christmas album on, on the basis of um, hearing it on your compilation. And, uh, you know, he... Um, but he was very good like that, um, uh, Robert Kirby, at sort of hanging back when the song didn't really require too much from him and then just kind of politely just sort of, you know, really bringing something extraordinary when, uh, you know. Um, it's funny you should say, but, you know, the, 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 he was your, uh, he's your favourite thing about those Nick Drake records because, you know, you know, I, I love Nick Drake, and I've probably written more about Nick Drake, I think, than any other artist. But um, there seems to be this slight stigma about saying that "Brighter Later" is your favourite. Like you have to, like Pink Moon's supposed to. You know, you're supposed to say it's Pink Moon because it's dark and it's like the last album he made before he died. And Robert Kirby's arrangements on there. There's almost you're almost expected to, to say that. There's a kind of like unspoken party line that that Robert Kirby's arrangements turn those songs into something more approaching pop songs, and fine, you know, uh, they're 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 incredible. Those arrangements yeah. are just so much part of what makes those record those songs what they are. And I don't think Nick Drake. I don't imagine Nick Drake would have had a problem with someone. Of course, that's why. You know, he brought him with him, with him on his journey from yeah, university. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite, quite the opposite. He yeah. insisted on him being yeah. involved, didn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, Hazy Hazy Jane too. Yeah. Christ. That's incredible. Um, you know. And yeah, I mean, I, I, well, yeah, the first two albums are the ones I definitely play 
or have played more than Pink Moon. You can sort of use them in your life more, can't you? Which, uh, and I don't think that's to be sniffed at, you know, by that that criterion of. Yeah, of, of no, no, know, that's, 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 that's a good, that's, good that's, criteria. Yeah. Um, I think we're a couple. I think we're gonna we're kind of close to having to sort of wrap up. But I think, um, do you want to just stick your hand in the in the tin a couple more times and? Uh, okay. Because apart from anything else, I can't remember what I wrote on those cards because I wrote them about six in the morning. Um, let's put my glasses on. Oh, hang on. No, I can read it. It says, what's your favourite Smiths song? Do you know, right, I wrote that one. Oh, no, actually, no, I didn't. That was international. I thought, hang on, I've never, uh, all these years I've known you, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with you about the Smiths. Well, I've that's, got, uh, that's I've got no idea, really, what you what you think about them, what you, if you listen to the, now you still do? Um, I I don't, but I mean, you know, I don't listen to, I can't think of the last time I put a Nick Drake record on either, or there's, there's a lot of things I've listened to a lot in my life, I suppose, you know, if you just mm. move into other things and it's not that you sure. don't want, don't like those records anymore, you just don't really think to put them on. Um, no, I loved the Smiths at the time. I don't think I could even guess what your favourite Smiths song is, and that surprised me, because I thought, I felt like I ought to be able to guess Absolute favourite Smith song. Um, good grief, that's, that's pretty hard. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd say my favourite Smiths record was the Boy with the Thorn in Your Side with Asleep and Rubber Ring on the B side, which is like one of the most incredible three tracks. Mm. Uh, and also, well, also there's William, it was really nothing. Please, please, please let me get what I want. Yeah. And How Soon Is Now was three tracks on one single. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, they, they were just an amazing, certainly an amazing singles group. Um, I think the Queen is Dead is probably the only really solid album. The first two are pretty hard going, but no, I, I loved them at the time. I thought Morrissey was an amazing lyricist, and uh, um, yeah, they, they were great. I mean, I think you know, I always found the rhythm section a bit clunky, which again is like there's, a lot of people say, yeah, four musicians in. Perfect harmony is like no. Clearly, two of them, yeah. are, two of them are really sort of uh, the, the main two Smiths, and all, all the uh, all the court cases and everything. I think that's kind of fair enough. They could have been any basis and, and drummer. And what did he call? Uh, what did he call them? He did. Morris did, uh, you know, disparagingly called them Bruce and Rick, didn't he? You know, when he was talking. About. <laughs> that's that's um, <laughs> but um, yeah. the um. Yeah, I was. There's a. There's. I remember the footage of them doing uh, uh, "Barbarism Begins at Home" on the on the tube for the first time. And um, there's this look on. I mean, I shouldn't really hold it. I, you know, it seems a bit unfair. But there's a look. It must be on YouTube. There's a look on Mike Joyce's face when you know cause they do a little extended drum intro to barbarism because at home and there's a slightly kind of slightly dopey canine smile on his face as if to say this is really good isn't it i've really nailed this one <laughs> it's just the smile you know it's one thing to do it but to just like, smile in that way it's just um it's like the most deeply unmysterious thing you know <laughs> We also, you also did that terrible thing of wearing a Smith's T-shirt in photo <laughs> sessions. It's like, no, no. He had a bit of a mullet as well at one point as well. <laughs> Sorry. Like, yeah, no, I'm sure, sure he's a lovely player. Sounds quite uh, but no, the, the Smith, I, lo I love the Smith. Do you know what was also... Uh, sorry. Well, we're <laughs> thinking about it now. Do you know what was, it's quite, is it quite funny that sort of um, he, um, he answered an advert to join Suede? Uh, and I think, you know, it said that like... It, 
influences the Smiths. Well, of course you're influenced by this because you were in them. But so there was an early, so he so I think for about one rehearsal he was in Suede. Really? Yeah, before yeah, the before they were yeah yeah no he they met him and then they stayed friends. He kind of gave him advice and stuff. So it, <laughs> I mean that's, that's really sweet. It is sweet, but yeah. it's kind of like it's sort of a it's just kind of um surprising i guess I yeah don't, i yeah. don't know what it is no there is there is a word i can't guileless maybe guileless isn't, isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Guileless. <laughs> yeah. um one last uh, random question mm. and then i guess we'll have to go and get some lunch or something okay ray-bans john Lennon shades or aviators there might be one other one in there as well i can't read i know so the question is it's a straight choice so uh, Ray-Bans, Little Round John Lennon Shades, or Aviators? Um, Ray-Bans. Still. Yeah, yeah. Something uh, well, of course, I've gone back to them. I've bought some um, Ray-Ban sunglasses this, this summer. Yeah. Uh, for the first time in a long time. There's never a bad time to wear Ray-Bans. No, Ray -Bans. no, they've, they've always looked good, really. I mean, they just went, there was a, a point where it made you look like you were trying to be in the Jason Mary chain, but now it yeah. doesn't, doesn't really anymore. No, it's 30-odd years ago. Yeah, yeah. I've gone back to the black 501s. It's kind of, you know, at my time of life, it's comfortable. Corduroy. <laughs> uh, I'm very cool. I'm never, oh, yeah. never wear denim. No, no, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I've never seen you. Um, although, Matt, I think maybe now that you, I think when you're promoting the State of the Union, I think you should allow yourself, d d d denim should be your promotional kind of outfit for that whole, uh, for that whole period. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I was thinking more of sort of, Frank Sinatra Watertown look might be more appropriate. You're right. I guess. <laughs> um, right, well, um, Bob, thank you very much. It's been lovely. Yeah, um, that was fun. We'll must do it again sometime soon, That'd I think. That'd be good, yeah. yeah. Um, you have been listening to the Ace Podcast. I'm Pete Perfides, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.